Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast, recorded here in Seoul on October 1st, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and joining me today in the studio is Professor Ambassador Ra Jong-il. Once again, NK News is offering a free year subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. And an open appeal to our listeners, if you were present at the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students in Pyongyang in July 1989, we would like to hear from you, so please send us an email to podcast at nknews.org. Now, to introduce today's guest, Professor Ambassador Ra Jong-il is former Republic of Korea Ambassador to both the United Kingdom and Japan, and now Distinguished Professor of International Relations and Political Theory at Hanyang University and also at Gachon University. Dr. Ra earned his PhD in politics from the University of Cambridge in 1972, and he received both BA and MA degrees in politics from Seoul National University. He was working as a professor at Kyunghee University in Seoul before he joined ex-president Kim Dae-jung's government in 1997. In 1998, Professor Ra was appointed deputy director of the National Intelligence Service, the NIS, and there is much more to his biography, but I will touch on some of these individual points during the interview. So first of all, hello, Ambassador Ra, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you very much. I'm very glad to, uh, to be here to be talking with you. Okay, so I'd like to talk a little about your life before your career in public service. Uh, you were born during the latter years of the Japanese colonial period, and you experienced liberation, the division of Korea into two separate governments, and also the Korean War. Can you tell us how those experiences shaped your ideas about North Korea? Okay, um, bef before that, uh, may I enter a little bit of corrections as to my present position? I am a chair professor to both Kachan University and National Defense University now. And I quit uh, Hanyang University uh, two or three years ago. Oh, then my That's apologies. My information was out no, of date. No, no, no. That's not important at all. Oh, yes. Talking about my experiences of last period of colonial government of Japan and also liberation and, well... Um, it's lots of a challenge to me because, because you see, uh, in a little sort of a booklet or a little sort of a booklet published both by University of Cambridge and also by Kyunghee University in Korea, I gave a little description of my experiences and uh, the, the, the small title of the chapter descri describing my uh, experiences uh, during that period, uh, it was a land without justice and also uh, something like land, land, uh, land of violence, land without justice, or something, something like that. Yes, it was a pretty violent uh, period. You, uh, you were describing all of Korea at that time, is sure, that correct? Okay, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. The, Last period of Japanese occupation of Korea was 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 also uh, pretty violent too. Almost forcible conscription of workers, soldiers, and also uh, women uh, for the for their services in Japanese Imperial Army and uh, a severe repressive, severely repressive uh, government at that time. But but there was a sort of hidden sort of resistance to that among 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 the peasant 
uh, I, we lived in a small sort of uh, farming uh, farming countryside at that time, and uh, I could feel the popular revolt, resistance against oppressive colonial colonial government at that time. Liberation came all of a sudden. I think probably nobody in Korea expected that the liberation uh, liberation would come as quick as that. And uh, to my uh, observation, Korea was completely unprepared, unprepared for for that, and uh, a chaos followed, ideological ideological conflict, of course. But ideological con- con- uh, the uh, conflict itself does not explain fully the kind of the kind of chaotic situation uh, prevailing in Korea at that time. Uh, collapse of even an oppressive colonial government and ensuing con- confusion was was really critical, chaotic at that time. One thing I remember in my childhood, 92% of power plants was in, in North Korea and uh, Soviet occupying authorities cut it off. I think it was 1948, probably in the middle, May, something like May, it was cut off. All through my childhood and boyhood, we hardly had any electricity. We relied on candlelight lamps, kerosene lamps, etc., to, to study. Then the war came, yeah, 1950, and that was, I wrote a little book about my experiences as a nine-year-old boy living under the occupation of North Korean army, the People's Hangar Court, and uh, the reform and the political education they brought with us, to, to us, that sort of things. So how, how did your experiences during the Korean War shape your ideas about North Korea and the North Korean government? The one thing uh, very clear was that the North Korea uh, had used to be a considerable attraction to uh, South Korean, particularly intellectual people. Looking back uh, to the days, had I been uh, sort of a little older than that, like uh, late teens, probably I would have gone to North Korea too. It it, it was holding so many promises, expectations, and the hope for particularly intellectual people. Yeah, a lot of South Korean writers uh, right. yeah. moved to... Prominent intellectuals, yeah. yeah. Quite a few of them who I still very much respect I went to North Korea. And uh, there are not many who made it good in North Korea. Some large number of them purged, either executed or sent to the uh, countryside, etc. Yes, I think a lot of those intellectuals would have regretted their choices in later years. Do you think so? Right, right. Yeah. But but the uh, the war was uh, experiences during North Korean occupation was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, wartime. And the living was difficult, hardships, etc., accompanied by the communist style collectivization and oppressions, repressions, and one sided propaganda, so called political education, etc. That was so much disappointing to the uh, liberal intellectuals of of South Korea. Um, I think uh, North Korea lost quite a lot of their former popularity in South Korea by occupying and waging a war in South Korea. That was a big mistake, I think. If uh, 
North Korea had not started the war, unification or at least reconciliation between the two parts of Korea would be in a much better condition now. Now, I remember five years ago, I read a paper that you wrote in 1999 titled The Politics of Conference, the Political Conference on Korea in Geneva, 26 April to 15 June 1954. (laughs) And you wrote about the failed talks to try to supersede the armistice agreement with a real peace treaty between North and South Korea. And if I remember correctly, you wrote that much of the talking and arguing was about what shape of tables should be used and who should (laughs) sit where. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. The the title was Politics of Conference, but the official title of the conference was Political Conference. It was a parody of official title of the conference. Officially, nominally, uh, the conference was, the main objective was unification of Korea, resolving political conflict or military conflict in Korean Peninsula. But the participants, mostly motivated by uh, politics, I mean, international politics as well as domestic politics. Many people, many countries wanted to be in the, uh, in the conference mm. for mostly from their, for their domestic political reasons, Australia, particularly India. Mm. Yeah, wanted to be a part of, part of the conference, which was rejected by America and South Korea. The officially, India w- was maintaining that it has no intention to be participating in the, in the, in the conference if they are not welcome. But in fact, they were lobbying very hard <laughs> to be, they were not invited, of course, they were not part of the conference, but still Krishna Menon was in Geneva at the time. So was working outside of the conference, trying to stop the uh, exercise some influences in the proceedings. Wow. The difference was that Americans wanted the uh, two-side conference, America sitting on the one side as a leader of the free world and confronting communist, communist side. But Britain wanted a kind of round table Mm -hmm. so that it would have more maneuverability between the two. You see, there's certain sort of a position of influences, the status and the role for, for his own country. Uh, that was big conference. Until, ultimately, I think they settled the four horses to shape. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm going to skip forward here to uh, the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. From 2001 to 2003, you were ambassador to the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And at this time, you met and spoke with Consul Taeyong Ho, who was on this podcast a few wow. months ago. I interviewed him about his, his life and his book. And he writes in his memoir, which I recently read, uh, he writes about me meeting you, and he says that he knew immediately that you had a background in intelligence. He said, North Korean diplomats are trained that any South Korean diplomat who seeks out contact and desires to communicate with North Koreans uh, is an intelligence agent. But Tay says that you spoke to him very kindly and optimistically about the relationship between the two Koreas. Of course, this was at the height of the Sunshine Policy period. What do you remember about that meeting? Uh, well, I do not remember that much. I mean, that must have been, uh, must have left, must have left a lot of impressions yes. on the North Korean diplomats. But I myself uh, have a very faint memory of, I do not even remember meeting Taeyong Ho. I do not remember his name. Only that uh, he reminded me uh-huh. of, of 
his encounter with me, and I, I think my intelligence background that I think that's their preconceptions. I mean, it could be. Yeah, North Korea, the South Korean diplomats what were very positive at the time toward North Koreans, and uh, I didn't have any sort of intelligence gathering. Objective yeah. in approaching our North Korea. I rather welcomed them, yeah. and even I donated some money to uh, the uh, expatriates, ex Korean uh, ethnic Korean community in London. I gave some, made some private personal donations so that they could entertain when North Koreans came to uh, came oh. to London. Also, uh, I remember organizing uh, a small community community of diplomats among three countries, China, Japan, and Korea. And we regularly met three ambassadors. Mm. And we also met among three countries. We met for tennis games, golf games, footballs, etc. Also cultural event too. So there was a little bit of a community while I was an ambassador there. Little community of three countries there. And when I was leaving to uh, work for new government in Korea, I left a wish that North Korea should be inducted to the community mm -hmm. uh, after after I, I had left there, and uh, but but somehow uh, unfortunately the the community disbanded, sort of disintegrated after my departure. At that time, how optimistic were you that North and South Korea would reach some kind of permanent peace settlement? You see, um, basically, I'm I'm an academic political scientist, really, I cannot, I cannot say that I was ever optimistic about uh, the prospect, prospect of real reconciliation, uh, real sort of rapprochement, real sort of uh, agreement between the two, two parts of Korea. My approach was a minimalistic sort of approach. Instead of summit meeting between the two countries, I was advocating a uh, small steps, like mutually helping uh, North Koreans to improve their quality of life. And uh, also, uh, we aim at, on both sides of Korea, we aim at improving our standard of ethics between the two. For instance, I'm supporting, I mean, I'm supporting uh, Eugene Bell Foundation. Oh, yes. Yeah, helping with uh, what they call multiple uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis. Right, drug-resistant tuberculosis. Yeah, tuberculosis. Yeah. I think that kind of steps between the two countries is more important than more ambitious mm. project like uh, creating a federation or starting to build railroad, etc., etc. Yeah, that's this. So helping people on the ground, more sort of low-level assistance. Yeah. My uh, idea was minimalistic, small steps approach, and then uh, some in meetings and the big political steps could follow much, much afterwards. And that was my idea, but I may, my, I may be too sort of less ambitious than <laughs> most Koreans. Now, in 2004, you became ambassador to Japan. That's right. And you were there for three years. That's right. Now, of course, that's a tricky and difficult task for any South Korean diplomat. The, the, the relationship with South Korea and Japan is never easy. Uh, I'm sure you had many interesting experiences there, but I want to focus on North Korea when you were, uh, since this is a North Korea-related podcast, when you were there as ambassador in Japan, did the topic of North Korea appear on your
your agenda a lot? No, not really. My main mission when I was appointed to the post was concluding free trade agreement with, with Japan and uh, the, everything, the conditions was ripe for final step, concluding uh, FTA. But but it went quite well, and uh, but but somehow it soured. Mm. I mean, in before that, we we spent quite uh, five six years studied outside of the government, and finally the uh, studies government level studies too, and we all agreed inside Korea as well as between Japan and Korea. We all agreed to conclude the final steps, and. Uh, the mission was given me when uh, the president appointed me to the to Japan, and I thought it was a relatively easy job to do. But somehow, uh, as we as we were discussing the details related to uh, to the free trade agreement, the uh, the problems, thorny problems arose, like free trade in yeah. agricultural product, which Korea had some advantage over 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 Japan. And like automobile, Japan had sort of advantage over. So in general, everything was agreed, agreeable. But but then in details there were conflicts. Mm. Ultimately, uh, political um, political problem was about the prime minister of Japan, Mr. Koizumi, visiting Yasukuni Shrine. Yes, that was. Um, Relatively a minor problem, but then the good atmosphere soured, mm. and uh, we didn't get any closer to a conclusion of a free trade agreement. Now, Japan, with the with regard to the Korean community living in Japan, that's yes. uh, a somewhat of a, a unique situation there because yeah. you've got uh, these two competing. Uh, yes. Groups very much in tension with each other. Uh, you have the uh, the Korean group that is in favour of the North Korean regime, yes. that's a member yes. of the Jochongyeon yeah. uh, yeah. group, and then you have the Koreans who are in favour of the South Korean uh, government. Right. Um, I've forgotten the name of it. The Mindang. Uh, the Mindang. Yes. Um, did you see any of of that uh, sort of, of tension or conflict while you were there? Um, no, not really. Uh, first of all, the put things in correct sort of perspective, neither organization represent, really represent uh, a substantial part of ethnic uh, Korean population in, in Japan. Ethnic Korean population are very nationalistic, largely due to the fact that they had been uh, they had been living there for a long time, serving, uh, serving the country in uh, various capacities. However, they had been discriminated against, never given any chance to participate in any uh, political activities, etc. So uh, both are very nationalistic, but they do not really represent a substantial part of Korean Korean community in Japan. Mm. Um, And another thing is that both of them are under direct control from their own government. And they have very small sort of leeway, very small area in which they can be autonomous. Uh, That's the real trouble. But uh, one thing uh, I did for the uh, reconciliation is that somehow I helped two organizations to agree on the rapprochement. And uh, for some time, several months, I think, they adhered to the to the agreement that they would not, they would be, uh, try to live in uh, good, be good cooperate. neighbors. Yeah, cooperate with one another and do, and do not fight 
against each other. Yeah. That sort of things really help the coexistence, mutual sort of friendship, etc. But that was was broken broken after after three four months mm. at best. Another thing is that. I was on good terms with with Chosen organization too. Their sort of strong point is that they had been concentrating on education. Yes, they have their own schools and even a university, true, true. don't they? Yeah, most of the uh, South the Korean ethnic community, uh, the people who can speak. Korean language is from Chosen education, and I valued that. Mm. And I employed in my embassy the graduates from Chosen uh, schools. W- was that controversial? That decision? Um, a little bit, but not not too much. Were they uh, Japanese citizens? No, no, they are neither Japanese citizens nor the uh, South Korean South Korean citizenship. But they didn't cause any trouble. Mm. Another thing is that I visited sometimes the. Uh, Chosen schools. Oh, yeah. They gave talks. And also, I arranged matchmaking. I really? did matchmaking between, uh, yes, Chosen people's children and Korean children and presided over their wedding. Now, I'd like to, to move on to talk about your two books that you've published in recent years. The first one that I'm thinking about, published in 2013, is about Captain Gung Min Chol, the last surviving participant in the Burma bombing of 1983, which, for the listeners who are not aware, this was an attempt by North Korea to wipe out South Korea's President John Dewan and his cabinet during a, a visit to Rangoon. Uh, and Captain Gung was the only person who ever admitted involvement in the bombing. Right. North Korea to this day still denies any participation in that act. Now, in your book, you describe Gung as one of the countless young men sacrificed in the long rivalry between the two Koreas and then forgotten. Why did you choose to write a book about Gung? Well, he's a terrorist and he committed a heinous crime, of course, killing so many people. On the other hand, you could also look at him as a victim of a conflict between the two two parts of Korea. Legally, of course, he's a criminal man, a very serious criminal too. However, uh, looking at him from historical or political point, more moral, ethnic point of view, can we really accuse him only as a criminal? Are we not responsible for the con- what happened to him? And he was recruited to North Korean uh, army at the age of 18. And then uh, he was so good. I mean, athletic as well as the uh, intelligent. So he was recruited again to special sort of uh, organization of the army, special uh, special forces. It's a hard training, really sort of, probably one of the toughest training, most tough training. Uh, and he was sent to uh, uh, Myanmar mm-hmm. to assassinate John Duhan, and he thought it was a righteous act, uh, act to kill a tyrant like John Duhan. Uh, I'm pretty sure that even in South Korea, there are, there was quite a few people who wanted to kill him for what he did in Gwangju, uh, 1980. So it is not that strange. It is not that surprising that Kang Minchol was the, uh, likewise was motivated by that too. Apart from, in addition to official sort of instructions, mission given, given, given him. Later he repented. Later he, in the prison, he came to know so many things and he was, uh, he became aware of the fact that North Korea 
in cold blood. So they completely forgot about him. So they abandoned him uh, altogether. Didn't didn't move a finger to save him from imprisonment or that kind of thing. Completely denied that North Korea had anything to do with that. However, we cannot accuse him of of um, yeah, accuse him simply as a as a terrorist given objective conditions of Korea at that time. He was wounded. Uh, lost one arm and uh, yeah, sustained wounds throughout his body. Was that from the bomb explosion? or? That's right. What happened was that we, uh, in an encounter with the, uh, the Myanmar the, uh, military people, yes. he was about to throw his um, hand grenade. Ah. What happened to him and to his another colleague was that as soon as he pulled off the pin, it exploded in his own hand. Oh. The both of them sustained the uh, lost one arm, wow. left arms, killing three. Kang Mitchell survived, mainly by sort of volunteering uh, all the information. He uh, conf- confessed that uh, how he came to Myanmar and to kill Chandohan. So he lived alone in Myanmar prison, insane prison, for 15 years mm. before I obtained the permission to to make contact with him. I had been interested in him for for a long time because, you see, um, I was a little bit sort of sad about the fate of this young man. And I interviewed later he was abandoned by both the government of North Korea and the government of South Korea, wasn't he? Of course. Nobody claimed him as their own. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. him. That's something which I... Uh, I feel really unhappy about our whole idea of nationhood and the unification. In our idea of nationhood, in our idea of unification, we don't we do not have any idea of human beings. It's just abstract entity like nation, Korea, Korea as a nation, we lived together for five thousand years. So what? And also in unification, you see the Korean flag, the uh, peninsula flag. It's just it's just a, a geography. There is no idea of about human beings. What we are going to do about ourselves? Mm. Uh, like what? Like peace, reconciliation? No idea of our human well-being, human rights, or nothing like that. Just just a land that I feel rather unhappy about. Uh, our prevalent idea of uh, idea of nationhood as well as unification. And also the this particular person of Kang Minchal, mm-hmm. I think probably I was the only one among so-called 70 million Koreans yeah. who paid any attention to the to this young unhappy unhappy young man. You mean nobody else ever visited him or wrote to him no, or sent him no, anything? Nobody nobody cared for him. Mm. And some people uh, thought of him as a for political reason, I mean, as a witness of North Korean terrorism, my idea was was as a, as a human being. Yeah. He uh, he told his uh, inmates, cellmates, that he never had any experiences of yeah, so far as touching the hand of opposite sex, and his diarist wish was to get married. Mm. He thought probably wedding is all that great. That somehow touched my sort of, uh, the feelings. I tried very hard to uh, somehow sort of 
take him out of the prison. I tried government so official sources, non-government sources, etc., without any success. I mean, nobody paid any attention to him when he died. Well, when did he die? He he died um, 2011 or something. No, no, a little earlier than that. So I decided to bring him back to life by writing a book. And that was the only thing I could do for him. Now, your more recent book from 2016... It's called The Path Taken by Jung Song Tech, A Rebellious Outsider. You seem to read so many of my books. Well, I haven't read this one yet, but I'm aware of it. So Jung, of course, for our listeners' home, is the uh, the man who married the sister of Kim Jong-il. Oh, that's right, yeah. Who fell foul of his nephew Kim Jong-un and was executed in December 2013 by anti-aircraft guns. So how is Jung similar or different from the uh, from Gang Min-chol? Yes, he was... Um Interesting figure, in a way similar to Kang Minchol, a, a victim of, of the regime, the conditions of, of, of regime. When uh, Kim Jong-il passed away in uh, 2011, most of the North Korean experts in South Korea uh, were thinking that, um, were looking forward to uh, the times that Chang Sung Tek's power would grow. Mm. It, it, it would be a sort of he, the influential uh, element in North Korean politics. No, uh, the moment Kim Jong Il passed away, I could I could almost feel, I could almost sort of uh, be sure that the end of Chang Sung Tek is very near. And I even said in private conversations private conversation, I said that probably I would give him two years maximum. Mm. And you're right. Yes. According to expression of a journalist friend of mine, I was wrong by one week. But but I didn't, I mean, I, it was sort of guess one. Mm. But, but, but I thought probably for the first year, they would be uh, in good relations because the new leader would have, would have to rely on Chang Sung Tang. But from the second year, the conflict to the start, uh, that would be end of end of Chang Sung Tang. And I remember I was asked by uh, my my friends, so what would you rec- would you recommend to him? I, I I sort of prescribed three three courses. One is that complete retirement from politics, complete justification, going to the countryside and live there alone. Executing, excusing himself on account of his uh, physical conditions, etc. That would not be feasible. Uh, another thing is he uh, makes himself completely sort of uninfluential, like the others, become a mere sort of puppet mm. or like that. They didn't try to get involved with any important decisions of, of the government, etc. That would not be feasible again. What I would have advised him had I, had I had a chance of meeting with him was fleeing the country and setting up and the government in exile, government in exile. Mm-hmm. in China, for for instance. I mean that would have been feasible, not anti North Korean. Real North Korean regime setting up a real North Korea. North Korea had a good start as we were talking talking before. Anti uh, feudalism, anti feudalistic oppressions, the uh, equality between uh, the two, two sexes, and also anti imperialism and equality, etc. Good start, but somehow it degenerated into um, unrepublican, 
undemocratic, mm. undemocratic country. Uh, I remember joking to a group of journalists that Napoleon, when he became uh, assumed the throne, became an emperor, people sort of were some people became very critical of him, Beethoven, for instance. But Napoleon was saying that I didn't steal crown. The, the, the crown was in the gutter at the time. Uh-huh. So I just picked up. Nobody wanted that. So Chang Sung Tae probably could say the same thing that um, the People's Democratic Republic is in the gutters. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to pick it up. To start. Even if it fails, he could live, he could live on in history as a good sort of project. The real democratic socialist republic People's People's Republic, etc. Real North Korea, not anti-North Korean regime. Now, in that book, you claim that Kim Jong-il did not intend for his son, Kim Jong-un, to succeed him after he died. I think he played with so many ideas about um, that. He knew he knew that uh, the uh, second time generates the uh, dynastic um, the, um, succession. Yeah, succession of power was not really suitable for uh, a republic, democratic people's republic. So I think he played with so many ideas. One was yeah, that I heard that from a very reliable source that he played with the idea of collective leadership and deserving for his family. Uh, the status similar to that of imperial Japanese mm. household. So a kind of figurehead. That's right. But but symbol of of the state, authority of state, and object of the uh, loyalty and uh, respect from the population. Safe, much safe for, for his family. Another thing, uh, when he was thinking of leaving his power to his uh, to his offs- one of his offsprings, uh, the danger is that as he did himself, surrogating, arrogating, sort of undermining most of his own power, the people would would be listening to her appearance instead of the ruling power himself, particularly when he was getting older and weaker in health, etc. So he put it up as long as possible to appoint uh, to the uh, appoint any successor to him. Now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, conspiracy theories. Mm. Is there a tendency in Korea to believe in conspiracy theories? Uh, For example, on the right, uh, we have the uh, conspiracy theory that uh, North Korean special forces were in Gwangju in 1980, guiding and leading the democracy movement. And on the left, the sinking of the Chonan was staged by the government uh, or the blowing up of Korean Airlines Flight 858 in 1987 wasn't done by North Korean agents. Is there a tendency not to accept the government's narrative on North Korea or other areas? It's a natural kind of phenomenon, conspiracy theory, and uh, we are all sort of easily tempted to that kind of uh, interpretation of what what happened. And uh, uh, a good definition of conspiracy theory is that it is important or weak people's idea of what happened. And Gwangju incident, I am I I will not be surprised to find any North Korean agents in the uh, event. However, that's not that's not important thing. Uh, it is likely that North Korea wanted to have some influences in the movement, but that's not the cause. Mm. That's not the real sort of real sort of the problem. What happened in Gwangju incident? If you ascribe 
all those what happened in Gwangju to North Korean intervention agencies, etc. That's that's the sort of conspiracy theory. The same with Chonan. I think government worked rather rather hard to prove that it was it really happened by uh, uh, North Korean. Uh, it was retaliation, I think, retaliation against what happened just before that. The uh, second, third. Yonpyeong, mm. uh, the naval battle. West Sea naval yeah, battle, yeah. yeah that was North Korean Navy is no match and in a normal sort of a confrontation yeah. with South Korea. So they had to devise some exceptional sort mm. of device to take their revenge. As far as we know, are there still North Korean spies operating in South Korea today? I think so. Yes, yes. That is quite normal, I think. Do you think South Korea still sends agents to North Korea? It's, that is uh, extremely difficult to, uh, uh, but uh, both countries um, naturally has intelligence services, intelligence gathering uh, functions and organizations too. And uh, I'm not surprised. But North Korea has, uh, in a much more favorable conditions to gather in intelligence information from South Korea. But I'm not sure, according to my experiences working uh, working in intelligence service, I do not believe that uh, uh, is it that much of a help mm. to either either side. Now, because we're, our time together is almost at an end today, I'm going to ask yes. you a couple of questions about the present day uh, developments, and I, I need to ask you to restrict your answer to 30 seconds or less. So, uh, what are your thoughts on the recent uh, North-South Summit, the third one that we had? Oh, that's a great development, I think. At least, yes. It's much better than sort of um, much better than talking about war, fire and the fury, etc. But but it's a good. But again, we shouldn't be carried away by our hopes in, instead of looking at hard reality of, of the situations. So once again, would you say that, like in 2001, that you're not optimistic, you're, you are looking at, uh, you prefer to focus on the, the low-level uh, uh, assistance to North Korea. That's my preference. Uh, how, however, uh, this isn't this isn't bad at all. I mean, uh, but but uh, uh, again, uh, we should uh, we should refrain from uh, carried away by hopes and the rosy sort of prospect. And uh, uh, in every historical event, there are changes, element of changes as well as continuity. So we should be able to look at both aspects of any important historical happenings. Do you think North Korean denuclearization is likely? No evidence. Uh, At the moment, there is no hard evidence that they have uh, decided on that. Uh, only speech, yeah. only what they are talking about. Yes, that's better than saying that we are going to keep our nuclear weapons at whatever, whatever the cost. Yeah. How, however, uh, there is no hard evidence that they they have really changed. And uh, again, uh, as a political scientist, it would be quite surprising, quite sort of something very very new in human human affairs that. People can change that that suddenly. I do not believe even Kim Jong-un has definitely set his mind upon any any, uh, final conclusion. Is he going to uh, denuclearize, give up 
are nuclear weapons. Well, that brings me to my last, my final question. Can we know anything about Kim Jong-un's intentions? What do you think he wants for his country, for his people? Let's put it this way. His difficulty is that he cannot keep his weapons. He cannot keep his cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. He cannot, he cannot keep his nuclear weapons yes. and uh, keep the country in a, in a constantly uh, underdeveloped state. Yeah. Um, he has to give up one thing, but, but that, is, that is not also that easy. And uh, even if he gets all the good sort of concessions from Americans, um, it would be extremely difficult to uh, expose himself to the outside world, given the state of his regime as it is now, the difficulty is that he wishes to be treated by outside the, country, the international community as, a, as one of the normal countries for which he would be required to open up the country mm. to outside influences. And uh, so far, they had kept themselves uh, in maintaining one way traffic, one-way communication, they broadcast out to, uh, the, uh, to the outside world, but they do not take any communications from, from the outside world. Now they have to open it both ways, and that will be extremely difficult. The movement of people, a large amount of, large uh, number of people moving inside the, uh, to the outside and um, also inside the country, yeah. um, and also uh, allowing their country to freely mix up with the other people from other countries, uh, that will require a lot of sort of difficulty. I do not know how the country is going to deal with this difficulty. Well, thank you once again, Ambassador Rajong Il, for coming today on the podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Not at all. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean news research and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad Carroll and Christina Lee. And if you enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends and neighbors so that they can can listen to. Thank you for listening again next time.